This morning's reading is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here. And uh, welcome. We start up a new season here this fall. And I'm excited about all that we've got going. Jump in and, and look at the text that Jonathan just read for us. Uh, we need to lean in and pray and ask for God's help. So would you please join me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning and say what you have to say to us. We need to hear your voice. We need to see your glory made manifest in our hearts. 
by believing and receiving your word implanted. Lord, um, I pray that you would minister to each one of our particular needs this morning from this word, by your spirit, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, just to let you know, in a 27-week deep dive into uh, the book of Galatians. Woo! Um, this is going to be a wonderful study, a good season for the church as we go deep in the gospel in, in the book of Galatians. It's about our freedom through the gospel. Um, we will have for you next week a booklet that we've printed up that will take us through all 20. And that will be our study guide in community groups, as well as notes for you uh, during the messages and some introductory material that might be helpful for you to kind of orient yourself into the book of Galatians in a helpful way. Um, This week, however, as we transition from our summer in the Psalms to next week, beginning in the book of Galatians, I want us to look at the text that Jonathan read to us in order to consider some of the priorities for our mission as a church. So that's what we're going to look at. We're not going to be able to do a detailed study on the passage that Jonathan read uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, but we're going to distill from it three important priorities that really need to inform our mission together as a church. Um, Let me just say up front, this is kind of like a warning label. These are all extremely counter-cultural. So if you're here to be stroked and comforted this morning, um, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. You've come on the wrong Sunday. Let me begin, however, by talking about this first great priority that Paul focuses on so much in this letter. And it's the priority of seeing and celebrating the glory of God. That's an absolute crucial priority for us who would call ourselves Christians. We must see and we must celebrate, not just once a year or or every Sunday, but this is an ongoing reality for every Christian. We must be people who every day discern and delight in and see and savor the glory of God. Look at verse 6 with me. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that statement in a moment, but in order to appreciate what Paul is saying here, in order to really appreciate it, we need to understand we need to understand what the Bible says about the glory of God. If you've read the Bible much at all, even if you're just getting acquainted with the Bible, I don't think you can miss this theme. It's throughout the whole Bible, and Paul in particular emphasizes it continually. The glory of God is, I would suggest, the most important theme in all the scriptures. 
In the 18th century, the American pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote a brilliant book in which he argued that God's glory is the ultimate goal of everything. Everything. All creation, all history, all humanity. We all exist for the glory of God. Now, applying that to our lives, one contemporary author says that God's glory is the source and sum of all full and lasting joy. These are strong statements that I'm making. So we have to ask ourselves, I think it's natural to ask, okay, well, if this is so important, tell me what is the glory of God? Well, that's an easier question to ask than it is to answer. Defining the glory of God is more like defining beauty than it is like defining basketball. There's something here that is difficult for us to really fully get our minds around. But because it's so important, we have to to press in a little bit. We need to try and figure it out. We can't let... Let a phrase like the glory of God go undefined. So let me suggest to to begin to understand the glory of God, I think we have to start with the holiness of God. To understand the glory of God, we need to understand or begin with the holiness of God. These two relate. The Bible hundreds of times tells us that God is holy. In fact, Isaiah, one of his favorite things to refer to God is to call him the Holy One of Israel. God is holy. And the holiness of God, maybe some of us hear that, and we think of his moral purity. And sometimes the Bible speaks about the holiness of God in that way. But that's not what I mean here this morning. That's not what Isaiah means when he calls God the Holy One of Israel. What I mean this morning by the holiness of God is is that God, at a more basic level, God's holiness speaks to his his, his separateness, his distinctiveness from, from everything else that he has made. God is separate and distinct from everything else. The word holy means separate. So when we consider God's holiness, we're considering his utter uniqueness. God is in a class all by himself. God is God, and everything else is his creation. There's an utter distinction between those two things. Nothing else that he has made is holy in the way that he is holy. He stands alone in his perfection. He stands alone in his greatness. He stands alone in his worth. One theologian writes this, his holiness is what he is as God that nobody else is. It is his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon, that that determines all that he is and is determined by nothing from outside him. It signifies his infinite worth, his intrinsic, infinite worth. 
And I would suggest to you that this is what the angel saw. This is what the angel saw and celebrated in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. The angel saw the infinite worth of God and cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. But then we notice something interesting. After proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the angel says, The whole earth is full of His... And we might expect to hear holiness, but that's not what we hear. He completes the sentence by saying that the whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God. And based on Isaiah 6, 3, I would define the glory of God as the public display of his holiness. God's glory is the holiness of God made visible for us to see and celebrate. One might say that the glory, that glory is to God what daylight is to the sun. Now, with all that in mind, let's return to 2 Corinthians 4 and pick it up just a few verses earlier in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here, Paul is saying, please don't miss this. Paul is saying that if we can't see the glory of Christ who is the image of God, if we can't see that and celebrate that truth, it's because our minds, he says, are blinded by Satan and we are perishing. And from this we have to conclude that Seeing and celebrating the glory of God is is vitally important. Seeing and celebrating the glory of God is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of salvation or damnation. And that's why Paul dedicates his entire life to declaring the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, he calls it, in 1 Timothy 1.11. And therefore, we come to verse 5. Paul says this, For what we proclaim, this follows from what he's just said and how important it is that we see and celebrate the glory of God. He says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, I would suggest to you this morning that Paul's Paul's method here in verse 5 is a model for the church's mission. See, we are not. Christians should never be about self-promotion. That is, that is antithetical to being a Christian. Christians have to kill this, this inner desire to, to celebrate ourselves. We must put away all self-promotion. We are called to follow Paul's pattern here by serving others. Literally, he uses the word slave here. We are called to serve others for Jesus' sake. And the way that Paul is thinking about, in particular here, the way that we're called to serve others is by declaring or proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. We are called to serve others for Jesus' sake by, by, by declaring the gospel, the good news to them, the good news of the glory of God. And so this morning I want to say that sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, telling people about the gospel, that is not an option for us. If we are Christians, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel isn't an option. Back in 2008, the atheist Penn Gillette said this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? Now, I would put it a little bit more positively. I would say that if we are committed to loving others, it has to start here. If we are committed to really loving other people, we must be committed to sharing this glorious good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and adoption into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to be committed We've got to be committed to this. That brings us back to verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love this verse. It is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. What Paul is describing here is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. Jesus in John 3 called it being born again. This is a stunning statement. Paul, in order to describe what it means to be regenerated, what it means to be born again, Paul describes that moment 
that moment back in the beginning of creation itself when God said, let light shine out of darkness. And there was light. There was light for the first time in all creation. That is the image. That is the event from Genesis 1 that Paul is drawing on to help us understand the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of being born again, saving faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't do that. Saving faith is a miracle from God that Paul compares to the creation at the beginning. Paul says that God is breaking into the of our hearts by giving us, by his grace, he gives us, he's given you the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of his own beloved son. There's nothing more precious than this. There is nothing more precious than this. Paul is not saying that God will give you some sort of mystical vision of Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is that when we hear the gospel, Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So Paul is saying that when we hear or maybe we believe we're reading the gospel, we're reading the, 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 the life and works of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his reign. When we read or we hear about these things and we believe it, that it is God breaking forth into our darkened hearts with light, like the creation at the very beginning Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian here this morning, you are a new creation. This is why I get up here every Sunday. My one goal is to preach Christ from Genesis to Revelation in such a way that you see and you savor and you celebrate all that the Savior is for you and has done for you now and forever. The gospel is nothing less than the glory of God going public. And we must be people who see it, savor it, and celebrate it every day. This is so much more than the angel ever saw in Isaiah 6. So much more. Through the gospel, God is revealing to us his justice and his mercy, his wisdom and his power, his holiness and his grace, his love and his goodness. And Peter, in 1 Peter 1.12, says, these are the things into which angels long to look. The angels long to see what God has shone into our hearts. Now, let me say this. If you're not, you're not a Christian because you read the Bible. You're not a Christian because you go to church. 
You're not a Christian because you, you live a Christian lifestyle. These are things that Christians do, but these are not things that make anyone a Christian. A Christian is someone who is born again, who has been regenerated, who has experienced the miracle of God speaking light into their life so that they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Has God done that work in you? Has God shone that light of his glory in the face of Christ into your hearts? Or perhaps you're just going through the motions. You're doing what you've always done because you were brought up in a Christian family. Search your heart. When you read the gospel, when you hear the gospel, is it, is it like that teacher in, in the peanuts, you know, blah, 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 blah? Or is it glory? Is it truth? Is it, is it what you see and savor and celebrate because it's your only hope? Ask yourself these questions. And if, if, if you're not sure, come to someone on the team. Come to Brent. Come to myself. We would love, love to speak with you, pray with you, show you, take time with you, take all sorts of time with you to help you see from the Bible, to answer your questions, to think it through, and to help you consider that, that what I'm saying is true. And what I'm saying is that the gospel has power to save us from our sin. But if you're a Christian here this morning and this miracle has taken place in you, let me, let me tell you this. You, you've, been, uh, you've been called, you've been commissioned because 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Someone prayed with me this morning, reminding me that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price. We are, we are conscripted into God's family to do his work and we are ambassadors for Christ. And so we've got to be a people who share the good news. This has got to be a huge part of our mission as a church. Whether it's sharing the gospel with people in the church. Don't assume everybody is a believer. Or it's sharing the gospel with a colleague at work or a friend at school or someone in your family or a stranger you just met at Starbucks. We've got to be a people who make it our mission because we're ambassadors for Christ to make it our mission to share this good news. It's the only power that delivers us from death. This must be the central driving factor in our mission as a church. I understand the church is called to do other things to fulfill its mission. We're called to do things beyond sharing the gospel. But if we don't make this central, I would suggest to you that without proclaiming the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the good works that we might seek to do for the kingdom will lack power and purpose and real authority. This has got to be our first priority. So let me just finish this first point by saying this. We will not share what we do not know or do not love. 
We've got, to, we've got to know the gospel. We've got to love the gospel. And I would suggest that love for Christ will drive us to understand the gospel, and understanding of the gospel will deepen our love for Christ. And so this fall, we will have uh, four classes offered about sharing the gospel. How do we do this? Because we need to be equipped to do it. So I hope you'll sign up when you see that come up on Realm. Let me go to the second point this morning, the second priority. We need to live each day in light of eternity. In verse 13, we read, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. It's, this is a good bridge between the first point and the second point. Because we believe, because you believe, we must speak. That's natural. I'll tell you, when I became a Christian 25 years ago, I could not shut up. I annoyed everybody within about a mile radius of me. Some people think I still can't shut up. But if we believe, how can we hold this in? We must speak about what God has revealed in our hearts. We cannot and we must not be silent in the face of so many people around us who are perishing. We are called to proclaim the glory of God in the face of Christ. What greater privilege could we have? And we must do this in light of eternity. Look at verse 14. Paul says, knowing, we do this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We share the gospel, not so we can expand our tribe and be right and there can be more of us than them. That's not it, folks. That's not it. We share the gospel because we desire, we long to see others experience the resurrection with Jesus on the last day and enjoy the presence of God for all of eternity. That is why we do it. And Paul suffered and Paul died in order to be a part of bringing this about. Friends, I would suggest to you that if we really seriously take eternity into account, what on earth could matter more than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not yet believe? And make no mistake, not everybody is going to thank you for this. People are not lining up to uh, repent of their sins and commit their, their lives and submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. People are not run, lining up to do this. I've had people threaten me for sharing the gospel with them. People may become hostile to us. We call them to give up their counterfeit gods and bend the knee to the one true and living God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. People might not thank us for this initially. Paul, wherever he went, Paul suffered and was persecuted for the gospel. But how did he do it? He kept his eye on eternity. He pressed on with the view of that resurrection day that he would share with those who came into the kingdom through his testimony to Christ. He kept his eye on that prize and he fulfilled his mission. 
Now take a look at verses 16 to 18. I love this. So we do not lose heart. I will tell you the truth. Ministering the gospel, it is very tempting often to lose heart. And that's why Paul put this here, because he knew the temptation to lose heart when we are committed to sharing the gospel with people who refuse to listen and who get angry and hostile and put up roadblocks and maybe attack our character or just oppose us generally. Don't lose heart, he says. And here's what he goes on to say. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let me tell you this. Sorry, this is my commentary. Sharing the gospel is one of the greatest ways I know to experience the inner renewal of the gospel in my life. Paul knew this. Listen to what he says now. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Here it is, the eternal perspective and eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What a perspective. Paul looks to eternity. And he says that there's an eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for him and in him through, get this, through the afflictions that he's suffering. That's what God is doing in his life. Through the afflictions, he's preparing what Paul calls an eternal weight of glory. And he says, by comparison, all of that, it's, it's light. It's momentary. Now, this is Paul, if you know anything about his life, he suffered greatly. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he talks about these afflictions. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But under this great weight of affliction, even Paul could discern the eternal purpose that God was working in his life, because look at what he says in verse 9. But all of this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If this life is everything there is, if this life is all that we have, there's no reason why we should, you know, we should avoid affliction and trial and trouble and inconvenience at every turn. There's certainly no reason why we should go and share a message with people that might make them hostile to us, right? But that's only if this world and this life is all we have. But if we take eternity into account, an eternity to enjoy in the presence of God that one can only enter through faith in Jesus Christ, then we have to take the risk, folks. We have to take the risk. We have to be willing to say what Peter said in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We have to live each day in light of eternity. Let me conclude this point by quoting New Testament scholar Scott Haifman. Buckle up. The only long-term future our culture conceives to be important enough to plan for consistently is retirement. 
This pervasive preoccupation with living as long as possible, as healthy as possible, and as wealthy as possible has dramatically impacted the church in the West. Our knowledge and experience of God is so weak and our desire for the pleasures of the present is so strong that we find it almost impossible to imagine that life with God in the world to come could be incomparably better than what we hope to experience in this world. That brings me to the third and final point. We need to display the power of God through our weakness. And this is about as countercultural as you can get, and I'm running out of time. Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure, this treasure of seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There is no room for strutting our stuff. This cocky swagger, this braggadocio that that makes us come across as having it all together, as being a success, we've got to repent of it. I tell you the truth. Every Sunday, for every time I've ever preached, I am in knots. I get up here every Sunday in weakness and fear and much trembling. Nothing acquaints me with my weakness like preaching the word of God to people. Paul says that we are inexpensive, easily broken earthenware pots He's not, this is, he's not trying to build us up here. <laughs> but we hold within ourselves a rich treasure of gospel glory. It's imagine putting the crown jewels inside a wet cardboard box. That's what he's saying. And God has set it up in a way so that the surpassing power would be seen as his and not ours. Nobody should think, oh, Ernie, he is so strong and great and mighty. No, they should look at his life and say, Jesus is strong and great and mighty. That's what what we should want people to see in our lives. Not that you're so great and you're such a success, but God is glorious through your life. Because how could anyone make it through what you've been through and still be praising and thanking? I'm way off script and I'm running out of time. Paul says in verses 8 to 10, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Power of God. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Power of God. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Power of God. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul juxtapositions this this God's power and our weakness. It's the only way to show others the gospel. Our lives, the lives that we live, have to line up with the message of our lips. And it's by showing the power of God through the weakness through the brokenness, through the frailty, through the trial, through the trouble. Do people see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in your life by the way that you live? 
Or do you try and avoid all frailty and weakness and trouble? Do you patch it up and cover it over and don't let anybody know? We've got to repent of that. Christians are like, you know that glass in a fire alarm box? You know that? It's got to be broken in order to save people's lives. We're like that. Look at what he says in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. We are called, every last one of us who call ourselves by the name of Christ, we are called to demonstrate the power of the gospel through humility and weakness and frailty. Not so we can complain and moan and whine about how difficult our lives are. That is not it, folks. It's so that we might talk from our weakness from our frailty of how great and glorious and faithful and powerful God is to us through faith in Jesus Christ who's risen from the dead and who's reigning over my life and is working everything for my good. Let me close with a story. Some of you have heard me tell this story. One of my heroes in the faith is a man named Stephen. Stephen was in a car accident in five years, uh, when he was five years old. He's in his mid-40s today. And in that car accident, he lost his mother, and he became a quadriplegic. It's very difficult to communicate with Stephen, but I have, over the years, had numerous times with Stephen. Stephen has never eaten on his own. He's never bathed himself. He's never gone to the bathroom alone. He's never enjoyed anything that you and I take for granted on a daily basis. He lives in a wheelchair and he is cared for 24-7 by a whole army of people. Wonderful people. And I remember a number of years ago sitting outside. It was a beautiful spring day sitting with Stephen across from him in his wheelchair and he was very having great difficulty to communicate But Stephen said some of the most wonderful, most profound, most holy words that I've ever heard someone say. He looked at me and he said, I thank God for this wheelchair because this is where I have met Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. I want to see and savor and celebrate the gospel so that if that day, that day of terrible affliction or weakness or frailty ever comes crashing down on me that I can look somebody in the eye and say what Stephen said to me. And God has the power to do that work in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please transform us by the power of your spirit through faith in your crucified, risen, reigning and returning son. Would you give us the grace to lean in to our weakness and our frailty so that no one would look at our lives and think that we are so powerful and great, but everyone would see and know that Jesus has the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, 
please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.